Please turn with me back in your Bible to Acts chapter 22. I've titled the sermon, I get this from Jesus in Matthew 10 verse 16. Jesus said to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. You probably remember that phrase. So I've titled the sermon, wise as serpents, innocent as doves. And we will see Paul demonstrating both a sanctified wisdom along with holiness, innocence, as, as he has to deal with some very turbulent uh, crowds and some people he's got to deal with here. So he's dealing, uh, at the beginning of our passage, he's dealing with the Roman tribune. Uh, he would have been a leader of up to a thousand Roman troops. He's a big deal in Jerusalem. Then he's got to deal with the Sanhedrin. Remember, the, 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 basically the, the, the senate of the, of, the Jew, of the Israel at the time. You had, you had the Pharisees and Sadducees and the, the high priest. They had tremendous political power at this moment in time, and Paul has to face them. And so I've got three points to the sermon, and uh, I've gotten, I, I used James Boyce to help me put these into words. I tried to come up with my own points a few times, and I had to just go with the simplicity of what he said. Very simple. Number one, Paul before the Romans. Number two, Paul before the Jews. And number three, Paul before the Lord. Paul before the Romans, Paul before the Jews, and Paul before the Lord. And you'll see the passage just goes in, in order with those, with those points. There's a whole lot in this passage, so uh, we, I think there's a lot for us today that is very much relevant to our lives, so let's go ahead and begin. I'm going to read the first section, verses 22 to 29, which is Paul before the Romans. So this is Acts 22, verses 22 to 29. Paul has just mentioned the Gentiles, and there's a, there's a strong reaction to hearing about the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to him, to Paul. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. Let's just refresh ourselves. If you're visiting especially, you may be lost what is going on right now. So Paul has gone to Jerusalem. He has given a bunch of money from other churches, Gentile churches largely, to the Jewish church in Jerusalem. He wants to bring unity and love between these two groups. While he's there, he knows he is running high risk of getting himself in trouble because if anybody was controversial, the Apostle Paul qualifies as a controversial person. And so Paul gets there and they say, why don't you go through some ritual purification to kind of make the Jewish Christians uh, feel uh, maybe a little bit more comfortable around you. And so Paul says, that's fine, I'll do that. And while he's in the process of being ritually purified in the temple, some Jews from Ephesus say, hey, I think you brought a Gentile into the temple, which is illegal. It's actually a death penalty. And he had not done that, but they assumed that, and they start a riot. Paul is dragged out of the main courts of the temple. They shut those giant doors. He is out there in the court of the Gentiles being beaten uh, by the crowd. The tribune, his name is Claudius Lysias, we find out later, comes down with his soldiers and centurions, so maybe 150 soldiers, maybe more. He comes down these stairs of the Antonia Fortress, and he comes into the temple, and they get everyone back, and everyone's afraid of the Roman soldiers. They grab hold of Paul. They start dragging Paul, actually have to carry him over their, over their heads because everyone's trying to get their hands on Paul. And so Paul's above them, and they're walking up the stairs, going back into the Roman fortress called the Antonia Fortress on the northwestern corner of the Temple Mount. And as they get up there, Paul says, excuse me, and he starts speaking in Greek to this man. He says, excuse me, uh, sir, the tribune, Claudius Lysias, excuse me, um, can, I, can I speak to you for a second? And he says, you can speak Greek? Uh, what, who are you? And Paul says, I'm actually, I'm, you know, I'm from Tarsus, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a Jew, can I address the crowd? And so 
Claudius Lysias says, fine, if it will help calm things down, <laughs> we'll let you speak. So Paul turns now. He can just change languages. He knew, he knew numerous languages. He can just change on a dime. So he turns from Greek speaking. He turns out to the crowd from the top of the stairs. And he addresses the Jewish crowd in Aramaic, almost certainly in Aramaic, the language of the time of the Jews. They are in, uh, they're, they're amazed that Paul can speak uh, Aramaic, their, their mother tongue. So everyone quiets down to hear what this heretic uh, has to say. Maybe there's something not so bad that he's going to say. And he says, hey, listen, uh, I was just like you guys. I was a zealous persecutor of the way. The, the Christians. I, I hated Christians. And he said, I was a devout follower of the old covenant law. I'm a Pharisee. I was zealous for the law, just as you are this day. But let me tell you what happened. This very Sanhedrin that meets right nearby, they gave me papers, official documents so that I could go to a city north of us, Damascus, you all know it, and I was going to arrest Christians, both men and women, drag them kicking and screaming in chains back to Jerusalem that they might be tried and some of them hopefully put to death. I'm on my way to Damascus. A bright light flashes around me, a voice from heaven saying that this is Jesus whom you are persecuting. And he's amazed by this. He said, wait, how could you be alive? And the resurrection is here. And then he says, Jesus says, I'm sending you far away now to preach to the Gentiles. And as soon as the word Gentiles comes out of Paul's mouth as he speaks to the crowd, they go, we knew it. He's a traitor. He doesn't really care about the Jewish people. He's a compromiser. He's trying to bring in the, 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 you know, the unclean pagan Gentiles into, the, into our people. He's going to mess up everything. And they begin saying, away with him. He's not fit to live. And what do they do? They start throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air. People say, you know, what, what does that mean? Well, throwing off the cloaks. Have we heard of this before in the book of Acts? Stephen, when he's being martyred, what do they do? They have to take off their cloaks and give them to who? Paul, when he was going by the name Saul as a non-Christian, they handed the cloaks to, to Paul. Why? You take your cloak off when you're stoning a Christian because you want to really have a fastball pitch. That's what you want to do. You want to have loose arms, so you take off your outer garment, you lay it at someone's feet so it doesn't get dirty, and then you kill someone with rocks the size of fists, throwing them as hard as you can. That's what they want to do to Paul. They're throwing off their outer garments. They're also throwing up dust. Maybe they don't have any rocks right now. They're just throwing, if we had rocks, we'd throw them, Paul, but we're throwing dust. It's the best we've got right now. They, they, they can't stand Paul. They want him dead, but they're also afraid of the Roman soldiers. Look at verse 24. The tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. Now, let me just stop here. This flogging, the flagellum, it was called in Latin, this was the, this was the horrific scourging. Now, now, hear me out on this. We all know about Paul's sufferings. You know that he was whipped with lashes, 39, you know, 39 lashes on five different occasions, he tells us in 2 Corinthians. That was not this. That was a Jewish punishment, which Deuteronomy says never to lash someone more than 40 times. Jewish people said, well, we don't want to miscount and break the law and do 41. So let's just err on the side of caution. We'll do 40 minus one. We'll do 39 lashes. So Paul got the 39 lashes in synagogues five different times. That would be horrific. It would probably be worse than what many of us have ever experienced in terms of physical pain. But it was nothing compared to the flagellum, the, the, the Roman scourge. This is what Jesus experienced before the cross. This is different from the 39 lashes in a, in a Jewish synagogue. This is also different than Paul's being beaten with rods three times. Remember that beaten with rods three times? That was also by Roman soldiers. But rods, you would, you would, you would plead for the rods over the scourge. The, the, the Roman scourge, and I won't describe it now, but every, almost every Easter I, 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 like, I think it's good to think about what Jesus endured physically, and I've talked about it many times. It was a horrific beating that was called the halfway death because of people who died from blood loss just experiencing this. And they're about to do that to Paul. You say, why? He's not been proven guilty. Paul would say, precisely. 
I haven't. Would someone else say that? Uh, Paul hasn't been proven guilty. Well, this was a Roman tactic that they would take people that they suspected of rioting or doing something illegal. They wanted to find out the details. They never trusted anyone to tell the truth without torture. So if we want to really know what's happening, we're going we're gonna to straighten your body out, take off your outer garments, we're going to get the Roman lictor out. You know, the, 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 the leather thongs that would come out would be multiple, and they would have embedded pieces of sometimes knuckle bones, pieces of lead, sometimes pieces of glass, metal, that would deaden all kinds of things, rip and absolutely brutally treat your, your skin, your back. And so they're about ready to have Paul experience that. Paul is already stretched out for the whips, and Paul throws a curveball at them. Look at verse 25. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? See, the, the ace up his sleeve was no one knew Paul was what? a Roman citizen. Now, you say, wait, the Roman Empire was huge. Wasn't everybody like a, Ro a Roman citizen? No, no, no. Roman citizens made up a much smaller part of the population of the Roman Empire than you might think. It was pretty rare to come across someone like Paul who would also have Roman citizenship, but Paul is ready to use it. Look at verse 26. When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune, Claudius Lysias, came and said to Paul, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And Paul said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship with, for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Okay, the tables have just turned. Paul is sitting there about to be whipped, this horrific whipping. Oh, Excuse me, Mr. Centurion, he'd be a leader of about 100 troops, 60 to 100 troops. Centurion, uh, is it lawful to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Now, everyone knows the answer to that question. Paul does. But he states it rhetorically. So the Centurion's like, no, it is not. In fact, we could get the death penalty if we do this to you. We had no idea. You're... So the Centurion is afraid. He runs to the Tribune, the Tribune, leader of a thousand troops. He is terrified because he could lose his position and even his life if he has a Roman citizen uncondemned flogged. So he comes back suddenly, he's groveling, you know, Paul, <laughs> we're going we're to do whatever you want. We'll give you a nice dinner, you know, whatever you need. Just please don't tell anyone about what's happening here because they're not even supposed to bind a Roman citizen in this kind of way, uh, normally speaking. So they unbind Paul and the tribune is at first suspicious. He goes, wait a second. I, I'm, you know, Roman citizen by price. I paid for this thing. And Paul says, well, I could actually do you one better. I was born a citizen. So he actually has a higher citizenship than the tribune. The tribune may have even had to bribe someone to get his citizenship with a large sum. But Paul was a citizen by birth. And so immediately everyone stands down. I want us to think about this for a couple minutes, and I don't know how exactly specific to get on this stuff. Um, let, let me just mention a podcast here. Um, now, his name is Owen Stran. His name looks like Owen Strachan, S-T-R-A-C-H-A-N, but it's pronounced Stran. Owen Stran has a podcast called The Antithesis, which I recommend to you. Uh, he deals with a lot of current issues from a biblical perspective. If you go on his podcast, The Antithesis, and you scroll back a, a, a number of weeks here, he's got two podcasts on, on my text. I was like, thank you for putting that out right before I had to preach on this. That helps. So uh, he has two, two 
45-minute podcast on Acts, mainly on Acts 22, this, this paragraph, this section, and it is, he goes into far more detail than I'll be able to right now. It is really worth listening to both of those, if you, if you go find those. But uh, let, let me just kind of boil down a few big points. So, Paul wrote, we know he wrote Romans 13 about submitting to our governing authorities. He wrote that maybe two months before this moment. So, it's not like he's forgotten what he said in Romans 13 two months ago, okay? So, someone might have a a skewed understanding of Romans 13, and they might say, hey, listen, we're, we're supposed to submit to our governing authorities. Why didn't Paul just take the lashing? Like, he just wrote to the Roman church, always obey your governing authorities. They're appointed by God. Those who resist them incur judgment because they've been put there by God. Like, don't ever disobey the government. Now, of course, that's not what Paul exactly meant. But then here, a couple months later, Paul is standing before a Roman official, a, not, not a nobody, not just a regular soldier. He's before a tribune a leader of a thousand Roman soldiers, up to a thousand soldiers, Claudius Lysias, this, this man. And Paul, uh, Paul pushes back on what Claudius Lysias is about to do to him. So here, here's something to think about. And, and there's, again, Owen Strand does a much more thorough job than I'll do right now, so please go listen to, to his podcast. But uh, one, one thought here is this. It is not sinful to claim your legal rights Let's just speak of America right now, because that's where most of us are from here, or most of us are, are Americans. And if you're not, then wherever country you're from, apply it to whatever country you're from. Uh, citizenship is not nothing, okay? Now, our heavenly citizenship, infinitely more important than our American citizenship or whatever country you have citizenship in. Obviously, being a citizen of heaven makes everything else pale in comparison, and it's the only ultimate citizenship that we must have in Christ. But it doesn't mean Paul's Roman citizenship was nothing, it was a common grace that if you had that, you could make appeal to your rights as a citizen in Rome, and for the sake of the advance of the gospel and to protect his very life, he could claim those rights in order at this moment to push back against what this tribune was about to do. And what Paul does is he doesn't start a revolt against the tribune. What does he do? He says to the tribune, what you're about to do, officer, is against the actual laws of Rome. So, you have the official laws of the Roman government, which says a Roman citizen cannot be flogged without conviction of crime. This guy's about to break that law unwittingly. He's about to, this, this tribune and centurion are about to break that law without knowing it. And Paul says, hey guys, don't you know what the Roman law says? And they start quaking in their boots because they realize they're violating Roman law. So, there's a, there's a, there's a good principle for us here as, as um, say, American citizens. If you are being, let's just take, let's just, you can throw out different things. If, if your boss is, is genuinely treating you in a way that is illegal, unjust, harsh, awful, abusive, illegal, you say, doesn't the Bible say turn the other cheek? Well, yes, there's a sense in which we, we love, we forgive no matter what someone does to us, right? That is certainly true. But it is not wrong to say what you are doing is not legal by the standards of our own nation. And I do not think it's wrong, and I don't think this is overly controversial, to take legal action when necessary to counteract injustice in our society if you can appeal to higher laws. So just to mention a couple off the top of our heads, just because the last two years have been so crazy, we, we probably most of us know John MacArthur appealed to the laws of California against Governor Newsom. Is it Governor Newsom? He appealed to him, said, listen, the, the restrictions you're putting on our church and all the churches in California are unconstitutional. Now, he also believed they were unbiblical, but in, in his political argument, he's saying, listen, according to the freedom of religion, this is not constitutional. And he won. At this, he, he took that and he won his case. Right now, at, at this very moment, and I don't really love going into the news uh, in a sermon, but right now, um, uh, th there's, there's another mandate, uh, is, I think the, the OSHA mandate, where the, the current presidential administration is trying to say that businesses that have 100 employees or more 
anymore have to enforce the vaccine mandate or else you can no longer be an employee of your company. Now, I'm not making a comment right now about whether I'm personally for or against the vaccine. That's for you to do your own research and make up your mind on the vaccine. I'm not going to say, God says you got to get it. God says you shouldn't get it. Use discernment. Do what you think is best, you know, obviously. But um, the idea that, that you have to get the vaccine in order to be employed would seem to be an unconstitutional thing. So right now, Al Mohler, the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, is, uh, is joining the lawsuit against the current presidential administration, pushing back, and they're willing to take it, I think, to the Supreme Court if, if this goes on. The forced vaccine is going beyond uh, governmental uh, sanctions. You're, you're going beyond what would actually be true constitutionally. Okay, now, there's 10,000 other ways you could think about or apply this to our modern context. But I want to say th there could be a distortion of Romans 13 that says whatever someone in a governmenting authority says has to be obeyed even if it's in disregard of the higher laws of the land. We need to think through as Christians as we're moving into tumultuous times how to understand Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, Acts 4 and 5, Acts 22, uh, Daniel, the book of Daniel, which we plan to go through some uh, in, in the spring, in the gym, in Sunday school, the book of Daniel to talk more about those things. Um, but I must move on. So uh, go listen to Owen Strand's podcast for more on, on that topic. Uh, point number two. So Paul before the Romans, he appeals to his citizenship. Number two, Paul before the Jews. Verse 30, uh, the tribune wants to find out what's, what's Paul doing wrong. He can't quite figure out what's wrong. So he wants to bring together the Sanhedrin. Uh, just pause here. <laughs> He's thinking, this is what Paul's thinking. Okay. The mass of Jews rioting in the temple probably not the place to go to get a clear, sane answer of what's going on. So here's what I'll do. I'll get together their elites, the Sanhedrin. Surely I'll get a non-rioting, sane, clear answer from them. Well, he has to rescue Paul from a second riot in just a second. So nothing's working for this poor guy, Claudius, Claudius Lysias. He can't figure out what Paul's done wrong. So verse 30 of Acts 22. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the, the chief priests and all the council to meet. That's the Sanhedrin. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. So he wants to know what Paul's done wrong. 23.1. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by him said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, he quotes Exodus 22, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, are you seeing here the wise as serpents, innocent as doves theme with how Paul claims his citizenship? He's using intelligence, but he's also not sinning, right? He's, he's wise. Now, again, you're going to see here, wise as a serpent, yet, yet he is willing to, to, to repent when he oversteps the bounds and, and re recover the innocence in that sense. Here, here's what happens. He stands before the Sanhedrin, and they can't stand Paul. You know, he's a traitor. He used to kind of be on their side, you know, very much so. So Paul opens up his opening statement. Verse 1, brothers, I have lived before my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Now, that's true, but as soon as he says it, the high priest, is, he just knows that Paul is a liar. He just knows Paul is, is trouble. So he says, okay, listen, if, if you're going to try to defend yourself unjustly and say all these lies about yourself, about how, good, how virtuous you are, we're going to shut your mouth for you if you won't shut it. And he signals to somebody, and they just punch or slap or something Paul directly in the mouth. 
That would be, an unple- that would be unpleasant, would it not? You, you make your opening statement and someone just punches you in the jaw. So Paul is suddenly hit in the face and he calls out. Now, this may startle all of us. You know, where's gentle Paul, meek and mild? Uh, verse 3, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you command me to be struck? Okay, now, wise as a serpent, what Paul's doing here in part is this. He's being accused by the Jews of being a lawbreaker. Who's breaking the law? The high priest. Do you see what he's doing? They're accusing him of a crime he never committed, bringing a Gentile into the temple, which is a capital offense. He didn't do that. They thought he did it. So they're accusing him of breaking Old Testament law. And Paul stands up and goes, okay, I'm, I'm trying to keep a clear conscience before God. Gets punched in the face before he's been proven guilty. And he, he doesn't know he's speaking to the high priest, but he says out loud, whoever just ordered that, listen, you are going to be struck by God. You're not obeying the law. So Paul's trying to show, being wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove, that he is committed to God's law. Okay, he says, listen, if you were talking about obeying the law here, it's not me. It is actually whoever just ordered that who has broken the law. But then verse 4, they tell him it's the high priest. And Paul says, now listen, this is amazing. Paul goes from that intense statement to, I didn't know, brothers, he was the high priest. It is written, you shall not strike, uh, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So what just happened was Paul got, gets called out. He was wrong. He, he made a sin of ignorance. He didn't know he was speaking to the high priest. It's kind of like honor your father and mother right here. Ananias is the least honorable man in the world. He's going to be killed in a few years in a Jewish revolt. So he will be struck down soon. He's a, he's a horrible man. And if you, Ananias was a corrupt, evil man. And, and one commentary said, there's no question that Paul was a far greater expert on the Old Testament law than Ananias, the high priest. No question. Because he, he, he had that position from, for political reasons, not so much because he was an expert on the Old Testament like Paul. But Paul goes, oh, the office of high priest, God has told me to respect the office, so I will not speak evil. Now, a couple things we can learn here. Number one, let me just apply this to, to our, uh, to, um, go back to authority again, to authorities in our lives. Um, a, a child who, uh, who, is, who has parents, let's say that your parent is not a believer, your, your, your father or mother or both are not Christians. Now, that's I can't even imagine. That's extraordinarily difficult and challenging on its, on its own. But it may be very hard to act honorably towards a father who is, in many ways, corrupt in his character, or a mother who, in many ways, has a failing moral character. But listen, we don't have to agree with what unbelieving parents decide to do. We don't have to agree with their actions and behaviors and lifestyles. But what we must do is we must honor the office, the position that the Lord has put in their life. Honor your father and mother. Even when they are dishonorable as individuals, we must honor our father and mother. Same might be for in many other instances. Um, we, we are called to um, honor those in authority even when they are acting dishonorably, and Paul does that. Second thing we learn right here is, that's amazing, Paul, in a heated moment of debate, is willing to admit when he's wrong. Now, I don't know about you, it's hard to admit when I'm wrong just generally, Generally, it's not a fun thing to admit that you're wrong. But in a heated confrontational moment, when the, when the other side calls you out, it is extremely hard. Even when they're right, how hard is it to humble yourself and say, you know what? You're right. I should not have said that. That was incorrect. Please forgive me. I apologize. It is so hard. Yet Paul, the second he realizes he's violated the Scripture, he says, okay, I, I did not know he was the high priest. I take it back. You know, he... he, he I should have done it. So even in heated moments or or tense moments, we should be willing to admit our own sin and guilt the moment it is there in front of us. Let me me just make this even stronger of a point. 
When you compare, now get this, Paul's guilt in this moment, which is tiny. It was an ignorant, he just made a, he didn't know who the high priest was. He, so Paul's guilt was very small. Ananias' guilt is what? Huge. This man is a just monster in terms of his, his, his morals and his ethics and how he's leading the nation of Israel. So think about this. Paul had every reason to go, 0.001% of this problem right now is my fault. I made a sin of ignorance about it. I didn't know something. I did something by accident. But you're a monstrous individual. You're 99.999% of the problem. He could have tried to rationalize like that. Isn't it easy when someone else is, is in the clear wrong on some major issue to want to point the finger at them and never actually own what I'm doing wrong? And yet in this moment, Paul, the second his, his, his sin of ignorance appears, Paul confesses it, admits it, and moves on. Paul is not going to justify himself. He's going to admit it right away. So uh, one pastor said in an argument, you know, even if it's a friendly argument, sometimes we're trying to discuss something. He said, how hard can it be to admit in the moment that we are wrong? And yet that is something that we could all grow in. Let's move on. Verse 6. Paul has a new plan. So wise as serpents, here we go. Verse 6. Now when Paul perceived... That one part of this group were Sadducees, and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. I, I can't help but smile reading this. One commentator said, Paul really put the cat among the pigeons here, didn't he? Which is a funny way to say. It's like you're, you're standing up in front of a group of Democrats and Republicans, right? And you say something. Like you just know. It's like the room's going to completely explode. And so Paul is sitting here. Sadducees and Pharisees, you remember? Very different. They want to look unified right now, but they, they're, they're, I mean, you know, Sadducees, they basically believe only in the first five books of the Bible. Once you get past Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they don't believe the rest is inspired by God. Uh, they don't believe in the afterlife like we do. They don't believe uh, in, in the disembodied spirits after you die, like your, your spirit goes to heaven. They don't believe in the eternal resurrection state. They don't believe that they have a completely different view of things. And the Pharisees, they believe the whole Old Testament that we would believe in. They believe in the future resurrection from the dead. They don't believe Jesus was raised, most of them, but they believe in a future resurrection of all the good and the evil in all the world. And so Paul sees an opportunity. Wise as a serpent, innocent as a dove, Paul stands up between the Democrats and the Republicans, between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and Paul says something that he knows one side is going to completely agree with, and the other side is going to hate. And he says, you ready? I am on trial because of the resurrection of the dead. I'm a Pharisee, son of a Pharisee. It's, a, it's the doctrine of the resurrection that's got me in trouble. Now, is that true? Okay, in one sense you could say no, but in another sense, yes, that is the major doctrinal dispute about Paul that makes him controversial is that Jesus has been risen from the dead. It's about the doctrine of the resurrection that makes him controversial. A guy appeared to him on the road to Damascus, risen from the dead. That's controversial. But he aligns himself more with the Pharisee side and says, it's the doctrine of resurrection, so what happens? It's no longer the Sanhedrin against a heretic. It's now Sanhedrin against the Sanhedrin. It's now the Pharisees against the Sadducees. And then the Pharisees immediately go, we love this guy, Paul. He's the best. We the resurrection, we love, there's nothing wrong with this man. The Sadducees, he's off with his head. You know, that's what immediately happens. So look with me here at verse 8. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and con contended sharply, says the Pharisees, we find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? 
And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. So, what you will see, though, is Paul really does make the resurrection the central issue for the rest of this book. Every time he stands in court, it seems like, he brings up the resurrection. That is the central doctrine that makes Christianity distinct from the other views. And for the moment, Paul has uh, survived this particular uh, attempt, and um, he is taken back into the barracks. So that is Paul before the Jews. The last point, just one verse, Paul before the Lord. So he's taken back to the barracks for the night to sleep. Verse 11, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must, also testif- so you must testify also in Rome. Now, I love to think about this. Paul has been beaten by a mob. Paul has been taken into the fortress of Antonia, nearly whipped horrifically. He's released. Perhaps the next day they gather together the Sanhedrin. He goes down to meet with them. They start a riot. They try to kill him. He gets taken out of that riot, taken back into the fortress of Antonia for the night. He lays down to sleep. I'm assuming he's laying down on something pretty uncomfortable, pretty hard. He lays down for the night. He might still have some bruises and cuts that are beginning to heal from the day before when he was beaten like he was or so. He lays down to sleep, exhausted. Perhaps he prays. He thinks on some scripture. He goes to sleep in that Roman cell. And what happens? All of a sudden, the Lord appears next to him. See, this is, this is the way the Lord is. I, we're not going to see the, the risen Jesus in any sort of vision today. I'm not, I'm not advocating that at all. But here, here's what I do know. When you are exhausted and you feel weary and you feel like nothing is really working, and when you lay down to sleep, when you go to your room, when you close the door, when you open your Bible, when you begin to pray, how many times does the Lord appear? Not physically, not, not speaking to us, but through His Word. Does He appear to us? Does He come near us? Does He strengthen our heart? Does He grow near and does He encourage us and console us in our pain and difficulty? This is so like the Lord Jesus. So if you feel exhausted in the holiday season, both what we've just gone through and what's coming up can be in many ways absolutely exhausting. You can feel like your energy level is running out. Your irritability is going up. You feel like your anxiety may be going up. Maybe even the sense of what's coming in the next few weeks may even feel like a big tidal wave. You're thinking, man, I'm feeling concerned, worried, just weighted down by it, even thinking about all that I've got to do and all the things that are approaching in front of me. Well, Paul was far more weary than than we probably will be anytime soon, and yet the Lord came and drew near to him in that moment and comforted him. And that is what the Lord puts on the table for us today with whatever it is that we are dealing with. I'm just knowing some of you personally and just knowing some of the stories personally over the last few weeks, a number of you have gone through a number of trials physically and otherwise. And so I just know that there's got to be exhaustion and that just tiredness, that beleaguered sense of a lack of of perhaps even of joy. And I want you to know the Lord I'm offering to you, the Lord offers to you that He will encourage our heart if we will draw near to Him. If we draw near to Him with a sincere heart, He will draw near to us. And if we ask, seek, and knock, the door will be opened, and the Lord will give to us His his very self, which is the best thing He can give. And ultimately, at the end of the day, Paul, although he does have a clear conscience, he was a sinner like us, and he needed the Lord Jesus to make him right with a holy God. Let's bow together.
Heavenly Father, thank you for your people. Uh, Thank you for the holidays. Help us, God, in the coming weeks to love our family, roommates, friends, coworkers well, extended family well. Uh, God, help us to reach out to those we we sense the need to reach out to. Uh, Help us to uh, love one another, forgive one another. Help us to pray for each other faithfully. God, show us that time with you is an open invitation to joy and rest and peace. Uh, It is not a burdensome duty. It is a delight. And God, I pray for any of us who maybe are out of the habit, perhaps spiritually, uh, any of us who have been neglecting your word, that it wouldn't be a guilt trip that drives us back to your presence, that it would be the joy of knowing you and walking with you that would draw us back into your arms. And God, I pray that you would comfort, encourage, strengthen us. God, and help us like Paul to be wise as serpents in how we apply your truth to real life. Help us also at the same time to be innocent as doves. And when we sin, like Paul, help us to confess our sin immediately and to seek your your forgiveness. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.